Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I am going to do Geoffrey Hill, uh, 1932 to 2016. I am particularly going to do his collection Mercy and Hymns, which was published in 1971. It's partly a celebration of the West Midlands and... um, 1971 was also the year that Slade went number one for the first time with Cos I Love You. Uh, I'm from the West Midlands, so I'm happy to celebrate all related events. What drew me into Geoffrey Hill's Mercy and Hymns was that I am slightly obsessed with Anglo-Saxon history and Mercia, you may know, was one of the larger Anglo-Saxon kingdoms before, quite a time before, England became a united country. In fact, on my last stand-up tour, I tried to combine the gigs with places of Anglo-Saxon interest. And also, I had a support act who had a degree in that area of history, which was handy. We went to Lindisfarne. And uh, Whitby Abbey, where the famous Synod of Whitby took place. I touched the tomb of the Venerable Bede in uh, Durham Cathedral. I went to the Jorvik Centre in York and saw an actual Viking turd. So it was brilliant. Yeah, so the word Mercian drew me in on this book. I'd like to start off with... Something from the acknowledgements section. I don't often go to acknowledgements, but I think this is helpful. This is Geoffrey Hill giving some sort of explanation of how the book works. The historical King Offa reigned over Mercia. That's Offa, O-double-F-A. We'll talk much more of him as this podcast progresses The historical King Offa reigned over Mercia and the greater part of England south of the Humber in the years AD 757 to 796. During early medieval times, he was already becoming a creature of legend. The Offa who figures in this sequence might perhaps most usefully be regarded as the, wait for it, presiding genius of the West Midlands. His dominion enduring from the middle of the 8th century until the middle of the 20th and possibly beyond. That is obviously not factual. It's sort of spiritual as Geoffrey Hill sees it. The indication of such a time span will, I trust, explain and to some extent justify a number of anachronisms. So what happens in this book is history, Anglo-Saxon history and other history gets mixed up with the modern world. I believe, and I'm going to get this right, so I'm going to read it from my notepad. What about that? In pencil. Um, I just need to make sure that it's William Faulkner and exactly what he said. It is William Faulkner. He said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. And I think he meant that we are so informed and influenced by the past and we 
are part of it as it is part of us. So um, I'm giving you lots of sort of uh, setup for this, but we'll get tucked into the poetry in just a second. The poetry is therefore poetry of place in that it's very much set in the West Midlands. It covers the sort of boyhood of, I'm going to say the poet rather than Geoffrey Hill. I'm always wary of, as you know, placing the poet proper just in the poetry as if there are no filters, no personas, nothing of that nature. But he did grow up in Bromsgrove during World War II, Geoffrey Hill, and so he's also, like myself, a child of Mercia. So it's poetry of place, which doesn't just mean that it's about the West Midlands. Uh, poetry applies to things a bit, because a bit deeper than that. It's concerned with the landscape of a, of a specific local area, with the flora and fauna, the wildlife, the history, the sort of poetry of the place. And if there isn't a local myth, then a poet of place will invent one. As it is, Offer is quite uh, quite a handy character to have, former king of Mercia. And as Hill suggests, something of a legend. Anglo-Saxon history, and I've read a lot of it, has got so many, we can't be sure about this, it seems it's possible that. It is, I know we're not allowed to say the Dark Ages anymore, but Dark didn't mean stupid. It meant um, there isn't much writing and there isn't much evidence that's really sure fire. So it gives Hill a bit of uh, a bit of scope for experimentation. I'm going to give you my second quote from a major writer. I could say a major American writer. Just as we set off into this, T.S. Eliot said, genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. And I very much believe that. When I read a poem, I get a feeling from it that, yes, I am going to probably love this. I will need to dig, but it'll be worth the dig. I read some poems and I think, this isn't touching me and I'm not motivated to dig. Here, I really want to get further and further into it. Look, I'm going to read you a bit because I'm wittering and um, I try to be songs witter in these podcasts. So there, there are 30 Mercian hymns in this book. They're all quite short. And they are all, I would say, prose poems, though Hill describes each paragraph as a versette, I believe. But you know what? I've no idea what he means by that. It's little blocks of prose. So we don't get line breaks and rhyme and some of those things we anticipate in poetry. But we get, even though it is... When you look at it, prose, when you read it, the poetry seeps out all over the place. You will remember 
maybe if you've uh, if you've been with me since the beginning i think the second podcast i ever did was about the american beat poets and in that i said with great sincerity that i feel that jack kerouac's in inverted commas novel on the road is really a prose poem discuss but not now here is the first mercian hymn can i say just feel it. That's that's why I read the, the T.S. Eliot quote. Genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. Just feel it. You don't have to get every reference. There are lots. Mercy and hymn number one. King of the perennial holly groves, the riven sandstone, overlord of the M5, architect of the historic rampart and ditch, the citadel at Tamworth, the summer hermitage in Holy Cross, guardian of the Welsh Bridge and the Iron Bridge, contractor to the desirable new estates, salt master, money changer, commissioner for oaths, martyrologist, the friend of Charlemagne. I like that, said Offer. Sing it again. OK, so... We get this list of some facts about the historical King Offa and some obviously modern references. He was not the overlord of the M5 as such, but the M5 certainly went through his realm. I don't think it's desperately helpful to Google every reference in this. Uh, there aren't usually this many I have to say. But obviously it starts off with a list of his great achievements because we then discover that it is an Anglo-Saxon bard who recites this. They had these bards, these poets, who would sit with great men in their mighty halls with the fire crackling and uh, arguments and fights and pigs' heads being eaten and swords clanging. And these bards, these poets, would recite stories and poetry and stuff like this, which is the great art of blowing smoke into the nether regions of a very powerful man. Just briefly, um, to touch on a few of these references, I'll just bang a few off, but bear in mind, again, I'm going to say, genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. You don't have to get them all. King of the perennial holly groves, I think that just makes him sound like a king of something mystical and strange because we don't really care much about holly groves now. You don't need to know, you know, that it was a uh, holly was an important pagan thing and there was a Celtic holly king. If you do know that, you'll know that Mercia runs up to the border with Wales and Wales was still very much the home of the Brits and the Celts and all that. Not really so touched by uh, Anglo-Saxon occupation. And we'll come to that in a minute. But anyway, he's the king of the perennial holly grove. So that's one of the things he's in charge of. He's sort of myth, if you like. 
the riven sandstone. So if he's riven sandstone, he's, he's having it worked and broken up. He's obviously creating, he's building a kingdom. Overlord of the M5, suddenly we're in the modern world, but it fits because if he was um, operating with um, sandstone, why wouldn't he have been involved in the M5 if we ignore things like death and time, which Hill does quite often in this collection. Architect of the historic rampart and ditch. Now, this is one thing you do need to know, I think, about Offer, and that is you may have heard of Offer's Dyke. And Offer's Dyke was a, a sort of enormous earthwork, as it says here, a rampart and ditch. And it sort of followed not the modern boundary between England and Wales, but close. And it was said to go from sea to sea, which it didn't quite, but it was big. I think the modern theory in Anglo-Saxon historian circles is not that it was keeping out the Welsh so much as it was uh, offer just wanted to have a big dike, I know. It was a show of um, power and strength and money and all those other things that kings like to show off. The Citadel at Tamworth. Tamworth is a place in Staffordshire where the kings of Mercia were crowned. The Summer Hermitage in Holy Cross. There's a couple of possibilities for that, but there was a Holy Cross very near to um, Bromsgrove where Hill grew up. Guardian of the Welsh Bridge and the Iron Bridge. Well, Iron Bridge was built in the 18th century. We used to go on school trips to it and it was sort of seen as symbolic of the beginning of the uh, Industrial Revolution. Welsh Bridge, I think, is at Shrewsbury. Contracted to the desirable new estates. Well, they, he certainly did sign off some fabulous new estates to uh, the church, for example, and to various nobleman his own family would be one of the uh, beneficiaries often but it also sounds doesn't it desirable new estates like bovis homes that are going up locally in 1971 when this was published salt master well yes he was in charge of the salt mines in chester i think it was a money changer he was one of the Anglo-Saxon leaders who first introduced coinage into England. Uh, the Silver Penny was one of his. Commissioner for Oaths. Again, that could be modern or Anglo-Saxon. There are commissioners for Oaths now, as I'm sure you know, but Oaths were pretty big with the Anglo-Saxons. They're nearly finished. Martyrologist. He had the bones of St Alban dog up and then placed. Uh, St Alban was a martyr. He had him dug up and placed in a proper shrine and um, friend of Charlemagne. He was sometimes a friend and sometimes he really cheesed off the mighty Charlemagne, who was probably the most powerful man in Europe. Now, thank you if you're still with me after that. There aren't that many references. I'm just going through these because it's the first one. It's a list I think what's brilliant about it is I like that set off, uh, sing it again. 
You almost don't need to know, and that's my point about this book, and this is how we're going to do it most of the time from now on. Riven Sandstone, Historic Rampart and Ditch, Citadel at Tamworth. You don't need to know. You can just feel what those things are. Uh, Salt Master, Money Changer, Commissioner for Oaths. They all just say power, and both political and economic. Anyway, I love that particular hymn because I like the fact that it turns out to be a, a sort of crawling poem about offer which he approves of okay i'm just gonna go uh to four and five now and honestly that's as that's the most references i'm going to give you interestingly there are notes in this as um supplied by jeffrey hill there aren't any for that first hymn i just read you so uh, <laughs> Why are they called hymns, by the way? I've read a couple of explanations of that from uh, the man himself. Neither very convincing. I just think it's because it is, it's got religious themes. Offa was a Christian king and it sounds great. Okay, number four. I might actually go to the notes in this because there is a note which I think is a bit of a humdinger. Here we go. Short, two short paragraphs. I was invested in Mother Earth, the crypt of roots and endings, child's play. I abode there, bided my time. Okay, I was invested in Mother Earth. You think, what does that mean? Does that mean that he was invested in it, in that he was committed to Mother Earth? I'm going to go to the notes for this. I love a footnote. And these aren't, strictly speaking, footnotes because they're not at the foot of the page, they're at the back. And they're largely, like so many enjoyable footnotes, completely unhelpful. And they're mainly in this book, I think, because he doesn't want to rip anyone off. So if he's sort of got his information from a book, he wants to mention that book. Speaking of books, I'd like to plug Anthony Grafton's The Footnote, A Curious History, which is a book just about footnotes, and it's, uh, I find it very pleasurable. I might even give you a quick quote. Here goes, and I quote, In a modern impersonal society in which individuals must rely for vital services on others whom they do not know, Credentials perform what used to be the function of guild membership or personal recommendations. They give legitimacy. Like the shabby podium, carafe of water and rambling inaccurate introduction, which asserts that a particular person deserves to be listened to when giving a public lecture. Footnotes confer authority on a writer. You should check that book out if you love a footnote, as I do. Anyway, these are back-of-the-book notes. Here is the note on I was invested in Mother Earth, as written by Geoffrey Hill. I was invested in Mother Earth. To the best of my recollection, the expression to invest in Mother Earth was the felicitous and correct definition of yerd, Y-R-D, 
given by Mr. Michael Horden in the programme Call My Bluff, televised on BBC Two on Thursday, January the 29th, 1970. So it sounds like Geoffrey Hill was watching that popular old show. Michael Horden, the voice of the first Paddington Bear TV series, he remembered that definition of Yerd to invest in Mother Earth. So not quite the academic note that you're expecting. Anyway, back to four. I was investing in Mother Earth. I should say that Yerd means to bury. So here, invested means I was committed to, as in when one is committed into the ground. I was buried in Mother Earth. The crypt of roots and endings. So you can imagine him down there with these roots, these plants, these endings. Obviously, it was his ending, but the extremities of plant life, the ends of the roots. Child's play. I don't know quite what that means. It could mean that children play in soil. It could mean that um, such was his legend and fame after his death that children played him in games. They played games about Offer the way I used to play Doctor Who and Western-styled pretending games when I was a kid. Okay, I abode there. So I lived there under the soil in that crypt of roots and endings. I abode there, bided my time. I was waiting. What was offer waiting for? Okay. Listen to this as a description of being underground in history, if you like. Remember, the Romans came to Britain before the Anglo Saxons and hung around about 500 years, to be fair. So obviously there's a lot of old Roman stuff. So he's underground where the mole shouldered the clogged wheel. His gold solidus, where dry dust badgers thronged the Roman flues, the long unlooked-for mansions of our tribe. Wow. Where the mole shouldered the clogged wheel. So a wheel from some chariot or car clogged with mud and the mole shoulders that as he goes past. His gold solidus, that's a, a coin, gold coin. Where dry dust badgers throng the Roman flu. So the sort of those chimney things that the Romans let their smoke out with are still there under the ground and the, the badgers are using them. The long unlooked for mansions of our tribe. So the Anglo-Saxon stuff is down there as well. It doesn't survive as well as the uh, Romans because the Romans tend to build in stone and marble and the Anglo-Saxons went wood. Not great news for the archaeologists. I'm going straight into five. Remember, he's still under the ground. So it, I'm thinking this is Arthur talking. So much for the elves' vare guilt, the true governance of England, the gaunt warrior gospel armoured in engraved stone. I'm really enjoying these words. You see why it's prose, but it's poetry. So much for the elves' vare guilt. The elves, um, there was still quite a lot of belief in that kind of thing when Offer was around. They were seen many ways, partly as sort of makers and smiths. 
And so uh, they might have created the Vergilt. The Vergilt was um, money which was paid. It was a sort of uh, blood money. So if I kill your brother, then rather than come and wipe out me and perhaps my brother and a few more of my family and maybe risk losing a few more of yours, we talk and we agree what your brother's life is worth and then I pay for that. In the note, Hill says, Vergilt, the price set upon a man according to his rank. So, um, yeah, so much for the elves' ver guilt. On the subject of the elves, I don't know if it's relevant to this bit, but Tolkien, who obviously wrote Lord of the Rings, was an expert in uh, Anglo-Saxon history and um, used a lot of Anglo-Saxon history to create the um, Lord of the Rings Hobbit and all that. He just made them shorter and gave them hairy feet, but... It's a very Anglo-Saxon thing, so maybe that's going on. So, so much for the elves' vergilt. Maybe the elves have decided what a man is worth. I think he's just rattling off a few things that were parts of his life. The vergilt, this blood money system, the true governance of England. There's all this theory that he was the first king of a united England, which he wasn't really. The gaunt warrior gospel armoured in engraved stone. Like I say, he was... A Christian offer, and Christianity was um, a tougher thing. You needed uh, to be a warrior. You needed to be armoured in engraved stone. I think he's thinking of those, uh, the few stone things that survived, maybe. I wormed my way heavenward for ages amid barbaric ivy, scroll work of fern so this is offer coming up now to the modern world from where he's been down there in the uh where with the badgers and the moles i wormed my way heavenward obviously a nice turn of phrase for someone who's coming out of the soil wormed for ages now a modern common term i was doing it for ages but also he was doing it for ages things that are officially marked down as ages between anglo-saxon and modern world amid barbaric ivy ivy grows upwards i don't know if he means that ivy again is a is a pagan plant and maybe he's thus calling it barbaric non-christian and scroll work of fern, scroll work um, you used to see on, uh, certainly if there's any Roman ruins about, you might have seen uh, scroll work, you would recognise it. It's, they use lots of flowers and ferns and stuff, and it's, it's ornamentation. So that's, he's climbing out of the earth, he's worming his way heavenward. Okay. Exile or pilgrim. Set me once more upon that ground, my rich and desolate childhood, dreamy, smug-faced, sick on outings. I think that that's the second voice. I think that's the voice of the poet. Now, his childhood features heavily in this book. So suddenly we cut away filmically 
from the ascending dead king if anyone can be dead in this in this work where history is today and i think we cut to the poet the speaker exile or pilgrim someone who's left the west midlands and now he's going back to it at least in their work was i exiled or did i go out to see exciting things have i come back as a pilgrim to see the holy place of my birth set me once more upon that ground i think that means um the west midlands this sacred ground that he rose from and where Arthur is literally rising from as we speak my rich and desolate childhood and that is such a thing for a poet to say because childhood has got it is rich because there's so much to think and write about it even if it's a desolate childhood that's even better that makes it richer even though rich and desolate sound contradictory but not for a poet because he gives him lots of sausage meat to make his poetic sausages, as it were. Dreamy, smug face, sick on outings. And that's very modern. Now, thinking of himself as a child, dreamy, smug-faced, sick on outings. You know those kids who every time you went on a school outing, they threw up. And then finally, I think this is Offer coming back in again. I, who was taken to be a king of some kind, a prodigy, a maimed one. So I think he's talking about his childhood offer. I think he's saying that he was always, it was always clear he was going to be special. Obviously, he was born into a royal family. A maimed one, well, almost certainly refers to the idea of the Fisher King, the wounded king from Arthurian legend who um, the land becomes infertile because his wound makes him infertile and he needs a hero to come and heal him and maybe the poet is offers hero in this he's going to bring offer back to life he already has at this point i would say okay i'm cutting to 12 I'm worried you're not liking this. Come on, guys. Okay, number 12. I think this is about the modern... One of the major points of the book is that he's not sure about the modern world and what it supplies. How does it respond to history? How respectful is it? How holy is the modern world? How sacred their spades grafted through the variably resistant soil. They clove to the hoard. They ransacked epiphanies, vertebrae of the chimera. Armour of wild bees' larvae. They struck the fire dragon's faceted skin. I know, but listen, this is what I think's going on. I think this is, well, I'll give you the next line. The men were paid to caulk water pipes. So caulk is um, sealing leaks. So this is workmen and their spades grafted through and I think they are cutting through some of that history that we've just heard Arthur describing as he climbed up from his grave. Their spades grafted through the variably resistant soil. 
it varies in resistance because obviously there are hard things in it, some of them which are important. They clove to the horde. One of the things I saw on that tour was the Staffordshire horde, which was and is a now famous treasure find. It was often sensible to bury rich stuff in times of trouble in Anglo-Saxon England. People didn't have safes and things. And if there was trouble locally, just bury everything. And then we all hope, don't we, when there's trouble that it will end. And when it ends, you can go and dig it up again. And the reason that we still find these hordes is because trouble doesn't always end. Okay. They clove to the horde. So these spades are getting close to beautiful, important things. They ransacked epiphanies, manifestations, if you like, of, um, of the divine. So probably religious artifacts <laughs> straight through with the spade. Vertebrae of the chimera. Chimera is, a, if, I don't know if I say it right, but I know what it means. It's sort of, slightly ungraspable dream and maybe that is about religion or belief in something other than earthly things it's a chimera but these things because they are actual objects based on religion are the vertebrae of the chimera they give it a solidity they give it a skeleton they give it something solid that you can grasp rather than all that misty theory armor of wild bees larvae now it might be that they're just digging through an actual wild bees nest the larvae is those white worms and they live in those fabulous sort of honeycomb cavities part of this book is all about local nature and how important that is because it's part of the place and it's a continuity between offer and the poet speaking in 1971 because nature changes a lot less than other things do. So it might be that. It might be an ornamentation when it said armour of wild bees larvae. They struck the fire dragon's faceted skin. If you ever see the, um, the helmet from uh, Sutton Hoo, it's in the British Museum, room 41, I think. It's got fine carvings and the Anglo-Saxons loved animals, dragons and all sorts of beasts decorated into their artefacts. OK. The men were paid to colk water pipes. They brewed and pissed amid splendour. Their latrine seethed its estuary through nettles. They are scattered to your collations, mouldy warp. So this is the modern world intruding on this sacred space, these religious things, it sounds like, buried under the ground. And also they seem to be intruding on nature. They brood and pissed amid splendour. So not just, I think, the splendour of this underground treasure that they haven't even noticed, but just the beauty of the area that they're in. And that's what they make tea and they urinate. Their latrine seethed its estuary through nettles. So where they've been urinating as overflowed and is running through this nature. They are scattered to your collations, mouldy warp. Mouldy warp was a um, 
old English word, or it's a variation of an old English word for a mole. And collations, I know, as a Catholic, are small meals because that's all we're allowed on uh, on fast days. So, sort of saying to the mole, yeah, this urine is going on your stuff you eat. Sorry about that. Last paragraph. I suppose it's a stanza. Let's say it's a paragraph. It is autumn. Chestnut boughs clash their inflamed leaves. And then it's that beauty of, of nature there. Clash their inflamed leaves. They're blowing against each other and they're red. The garden festers for attention. Telluric cultures enriched with shards, corms, nodules. The sunk solids of gravity. Telluric means of the soil. So cultures enriched with shards, corms. Corms are like, um, they're like thick pieces of stem. Uh, nodules are, um, they're like mineral lumps, if you like, of plant life. So shards obviously pieces of pottery and stuff, corms, nodules, the sunk solids of gravity. So there are all these hard things, representatives of nature as, as well as all this treasure under the ground there. And this area, this whatever it is, a meadow, it owns all these interesting things with their fabulous names their telluric cultures enriched with shards, corms, nodules, the sunk solids of gravity. Gravity's dragging them. It's that thing again about below the earth, there's all this interesting historical natural stuff happening and the modern world clambering about on the surface doesn't know about it. And it ends, I think this is nature speaking, the area that they are working in speaking. I have accrued a golden and stinking blaze. So I've sort of grown, I've, I've acquired a golden and stinking blaze. A blaze, I think, like on the head of a horse, a lighter patch that is stinking because it's made of the ignorant workman's urine. Sorry, everyone. Yes, that. Okay, I'm going to go right to the end now because I think I've pushed you to the limit in many ways. And um, I'm just going to do the last two. And I think this now is the poet speaking. And I think speaking about offer, about history, about the past of where he grew up there in the West Midlands and... This is what he said, not strangeness, but strange likeness. So don't think of the past. Don't think of the history of this area as strange, but strange likeness. In other words, it's like us. It really is like us mainly, but it's like us in a very strange way. But it's not strange to us. We emanated from it. And if we really think about it, and if we respect it, and if we delve into it, if we swim in it, 
we can make contact and feel its power and its importance. Not strangeness, but strange lightness. So it is in me and I am in it. Obstinate, it is still, the I think, the speaker. Obstinate, outclassed forefathers. I too concede. I am your staggeringly gifted child. And I think that is the poet, obstinate, outclassed forefathers. So, yeah, we have, obviously, there's been progress of sorts. You made mistakes. You you didn't do all the right things. I admit that. I am your staggeringly gifted child because I've learned so much from you and from everything that's happened since you. And I think that goes right back to the very first hymn where Offer wants to hear it sung again. It's okay. It's a sort of a celebratory thing to be able to be praised and to praise yourself. I am your staggeringly gifted child. Yeah. Great. Okay, then we get a bit of a stage direction. So murmurous, he withdrew from them. He's been talking to his uh, forefathers. So murmurous, he withdrew from them. When I say that casually, he's been talking to his forefathers. I know that's quite cosmic and mysterious and supernatural. But this is Geoffrey Hill's Mercy and Hymns. I wish I could read you more, but I don't want you to set fire to my house. So murmurous. He withdrew from them. So he leaves them still muttering to himself, if you like, murmuring. Gran lit the gas, his dice whirred in the Ludo cup. He entered into the last dream of Offer the King. So then we suddenly go sort of World War Two West Midlands domestic. He's just been speaking, and this is how this collection works. He's speaking to his forefathers. He's making this profound statement, not strangeness, but strange lightness. He's acknowledging that he is their staggeringly gifted child because they have given him so many gifts. So he's, it's not a, a, a brag. It's a praise of them as well. But then so murmurous, he withdrew from them. So he, he now comes back into his actual physical setting in this West Midlands World War II home with his gran. It's got an element of um, that sort of Billy Liar type of literature where the speaker is in a physical setting, but he keeps going into his imagination. Okay, so murmurous, he withdrew from them. So he's still slightly in the mode. He doesn't come out of it. With a click, he comes out of it gradually. Gran lit the gas. This was in the days when um, we had a bathroom when I was a kid, which was lit by a big metal pipe that stuck out the wall, and you lit it, and a big raw flame just burst, and that was the light. And that room contained the bath and the cooker. Just leave it. His dice word in the Ludo Cup, word W-H-I-R-R-E-D, or he rattled around the Ludo Cup. You may have played Ludo, you may not, but it's a children's game. He entered into the last dream of Offer the King, so the whirring dice sets him off again. And this is the 
last thing, and it's very, very short. It is Mercy and Him, number 30. And it seemed while we waited, he began to walk towards us. He vanished. And that is actually quite a big gap in the writing there. There's a, there's a, a, a chunk of whiteness on the page that makes us pause. And it seemed while we waited, he began to walk towards us. He vanished. So it just seems like offer is going to really manifest and then he disappears. He left behind coins for his lodging and traces of red mud. As we said in hymn number one, he was very much associated with coinage. The silver penny, also I think the first ever gold coins in uh, in this island. And uh, so it's apt that he leaves coins for his lodging. Again, it's brought into the modern world and traces of red mud. And he has, remember, climbed up from his underground abode. So he's allowed to be muddy, maybe red with blood. Maybe it's that kind of clay soil that if I remember, my dad always used to say um, holds water and nutrients. So it sort of preserves things. So maybe that's why he's come out of it so well. Look, this has been a bit like an Anglo-Saxon history podcast with a bit of poetry in it. And it's had as many I thinks and maybes in it because um, I'm not going to say I totally understand Mercy and Hymns. What I am going to say is I really, really like reading them I was I had planned to read you more but I think I've already pushed you to the absolute limit can I just do one really quick bit I'm not going to explain any of it he divided his realm it lay there like a dream an ancient land full of strategy ramparts of compost pioneered by red helmeted worms Hemlock in ambush, night soil tetanus, a wasp's nest ensconced in the hedgebank, a reliquary or wrapped head, the corpse of Sununos pitching dayward its feral horns. If I ever meet you in a bar, I'll explain that bit to you as well. I really love Geoffrey Hill's Mercian hymns. It's so far up my strata, the West Midlands and Anglo-Saxon history, that I would do, wouldn't I? I hope it was okay. Check it out. It's a slim volume. I, I really think it is very, very special. I fear, as ever, with stuff I love, I haven't done it justice. But you can take it in your hands and read Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week. 